following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. Uh, Father, as we, um, as we gather here, I am so grateful I would express gratitude on behalf of all here um, for you, for your Son, Jesus Christ, for your Holy Spirit. Uh, for God, the way that you bless us and overwhelm us with good things, we've sought to rehearse that here this morning again through our worship. God, thank you for your word to us. God, thank you for uh, the church that you've called us to be a part of. God, thank you for the mission that you've uh, set into our hands. And God, we would just express our own desire that you would be pleased with us, with what you see in your servants, what you see in us right now as we uh, lean in to hear your word to us. And God, we sincerely pray, earnestly pray, that you would change us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. Change us, God. In his name we pray. If you agree with that prayer, just say amen. Amen. All right, um, I'm going to have you give your attention to the screen for a few moments, and I, I want to ask you a question. What would your, what would your reaction be if Tom Hanks uh, showed up for church? What would, all right, ladies, settle down. <laughs> settle down. It's not Denzel or anything. It's just Tom Hanks. All right. What would your reaction be if uh, Brad and Angelina came through the door with the kids right now for a little visit? What if, what if the uber-wealthy Bill and Melinda Gates just walked into church? What would, what would our... Well, this, this sermon's for you, whoever did that. For sure, you need to be listening. I, I, I think the reaction would be the same for all of these people if we were, if we were being real honest with ourselves right now, that, that we would go out of our way to welcome them. I mean, don't you think that you would want to, no matter who it was, if it was any of these people, you would want to engage them in conversation. You'd want to be part of that. You'd want to even go over to them and, and say, hey, can I help you? Can I help you? Ch- hey, hey, Brad, Angelique, can I help you check the kids in to Harvest Kids? Can I show you the way? Our worship center's over here. Can I, can I help you find your way around the building? Hey, the, if you don't have anybody to sit with, would you like to come and sit with, with me and my family? Don't you think you'd do that? Don't you think you'd just like trip over yourself to make them feel welcome here at Harvest? You'd probably even invite them to your place or to go out afterwards for a meal. You'd extend yourself. You'd want it to last. Okay. Could you just agree that that's the way it would be? Just a simple nod of the head you would agree that that's the way it would be if some celebrity of your liking, if I didn't hit yours, some celebrity or person of power or person of wealth and influence came through the door, that's that's the way you would be. All right. Having established that, what if if this couple showed up? Would you treat them? Don't be so quick. Would you treat them with the same respect? Respect. Would you invite them in to sit with you? What about this girl? Would you invite her to join you at Boston Pizza after worship? Would you want to spend some extra time with her? 
What about this man? Would you be just as eager to invite him to sit with you? To help him find his way around the building? To make sure that he felt welcomed in this place? Today's passage in James 2 lays out a clear command. It is a command. Show no partiality. And it doesn't come with any exemptions. Show no partiality. We're going to say it this way. There's no room for discrimination among the the followers of Jesus Christ. There's no room for it. That's what this passage is about. I'm going to read it. Then we're going to unpack it together. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you you stand over there, or you sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen? Amen. There's no room for discrimination among Christ followers. Let's understand what we mean by discrimination Uh, The word in the passage we've seen already, and you can mark it uh, there, is partiality. It's used a couple of times in the passage. If you have the NIV, you're going to see that the command plays out this way. Don't show favoritism. We've used the word discrimination. One source defines it this way. It's making a distinction in favor or against a person. We can discriminate in favor of a person. I like you. I think you're powerful. I think you're rich. I think you're uh, an influential person, um, so I'm going to prefer you. That's discrimination. Or it can be uh, you smell. In the case of, like, for example, I could use Mike Armstrong as an illustration. Just stand up for a a minute, Mike. Uh, You have a beard and you wear skinny jeans, okay? Therefore, I don't prefer you. Get it? See how this works? All right. Thank you, Mike. He'll be fine. He gets a paycheck. It's all right. 
Making a distinction in favor or against a person based on the group, class, or category. Category would be like bearded person, skinny jean wearing guy, you know, that's the category. To which that person belongs rather than on individual merit. In fact, the word partiality or favoritism here is, it's, a, it's an idiom. And it, it literally means, if we're translated, it literally means to, to accept a face, to accept a face, or to see someone according to their face. And, and thus, it means to judge on the basis of external appearances. That's discrimination. We then can break that down and all of the different varieties of discrimination that we might face or see or commit in our culture today, we could just break it down this way. It could be ageism. And ageism really can go both ways. Either I'm not terribly fond of youth, I'm coming up on 50, so this can, I can go you know, one way or the other on this. Um, either I'm not too fond of youth and all their enthusiasm and all the mistakes they make, or ageism uh, most often goes the other way. I'm just not very patient with seniors, and um, they're so troublesome, and that's ageism. Or ableism. Okay, like, I, I just don't have it. I, I just can't tolerate people who are disabled. That's ableism. Or racism. That's self-explanatory. Or sexism, also sep- self-explanatory. Or classism, that I dis- uh, discriminate on the basis of socioeconomic and where people fall in the stratas of society. And all of that is discrimination. And there's no room. I hope you hear me already. There's no room for discrimination among Christ followers. And so let's look at it this way. Uh, Why is that? Why is it that the followers of Christ more than any other people need to be non-discriminatory with regard to their relationships to others? Three reasons. First is this. It fails to display the glory of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's our ultimate thing anyways. We exist on this planet. You exist today. You are alive today. You are in this place today for one reason alone, and that is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. I hope you understand that. I hope uh, alongside all the other things that you are and you do in your life, your number one purpose for living is to glorify Jesus Christ. That's true for every human being, whether they realize it or not. And and so there's no room for discrimination among Christ followers because it fails to display the glory of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1 again of James chapter 2. Look at the way he starts this out. My brothers, he appeals to them, show no partiality. That's the command. As you hold the faith. He's talking about the broad understanding of what we believe. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He makes sure that every bit of this argument is focused on the centrality of who Jesus Christ is. And he shows us that if we have this faith, if we believe these things, if we worship the Lord Jesus Christ, if his glory is our ultimate end, then it is utterly and completely incompatible to discriminate against any person. Because God doesn't. The focus here is on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as if James is saying this. Go vertical with God. Go vertical with God. And it will align the horizontal with people. If only we could have that perspective. Put Jesus in his rightful place. 
in your life, and you'll see people the way he sees people. I've thought a lot about this. I've thought a lot about why it is that we, as the followers of Jesus Christ, saying that we love him and we want to please him and live for him, all of this, and yet, probably among all people, we are the best at screwing up relationships. How many churches do we know that have gone through splits? How many Christian marriages still struggle and fail? How many people are not talking to other people, though they both name the name of Jesus Christ and all the tension, and I can't be in that small group anymore, and I can't be around that person, and I come to first service because she goes to second? That's the beauty of having two services in a church is that we can have all this animosity and all this tension. And and the reason why this happens is because we're not perfectly aligned with the verticality of our relationship with Jesus Christ first. And if you take people like us and you throw us together as often as you throw us together, we get together every Sunday for worship. We go to a small group during the week together. We're on a serving team together. We have friendships in this room. There's just so much time that we spend together. And when you think about it, aside from your own family, you probably don't spend as much time with anyone else as you do with the people uh, that love Jesus Christ like you do and are part of this church. As you throw all those people together and they're all claiming to love Jesus... But if they're not first aligned with the Lord, I'm just going to say this. Of course, you're going to screw up the relationships. Of course, it's going to go offside. Of course, there's going to be conflict and estrangement from one another because we're just spending too much time together without first having ourselves aligned with the Lord. If we're close to God's people without being close to God, we will eventually mess up those relationships. It's just a rule. It's a given. We're too close-knit. We're too tightly related. We're just together so often that it's just going to happen. So it's so important that we ensure that our intimacy with the Lord is aligned or else, back to the topic at hand, or else we will end up discriminating against people. We will end up manifesting one or more of the isms that we don't want to see manifested in our lives. Well, James then goes into an example, and I think it's fairly clear that this isn't just a hypothetical example. James is writing for a reason that this church that he's writing to or series of churches must have had some kind of problem with this. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, let's call him Tom Hanks comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing, having your mind that homeless guy with the cigarette and the shriveled face and all the evidence of a hard life. These two guys come in and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. Come on in, Mr. Hanks. It's so good to have you here today. So glad that you've come. It's a real surprise for us. We've got a really great seat here for you. You can sit here with me and my family. If I can help you with anything else, Mr. Hanks, please, please let me know. There's a copy of the sermon notes. Can I get you a Bible? Are you comfortable? 
You can bet that this homeless guy that comes in, this, and the word for poor here in the text, is, this isn't just working poor, this is dirt poor. This is destitute poor. This is the guy who only has one set of clothes, and they smell bad. Oh, come on in, Mr. Homeless Guy. Can I help you find a seat? Would you like to sit with my family? You're having a hard time not gagging. Honestly, this is a hard-hitting, punch-you-in-the-gut kind of passage that he's saying. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, you you know what? Smelly homeless guy. Maybe you could just stand at the back away from people so you don't offend anybody. Or, or, or uh, we don't really have a seat for you. We we don't, maybe you could just come up here and sit on the carpet here. You'll be close. So that's kind of a thing. But we don't have a chair for you. Just sit here on the floor. James is getting to the heart of the issue here. Again, I doubt very seriously he's writing this without knowing that it was something of a problem for them. They were guilty of discrimination and having leveled this accusation through an example at them, he says then in verse 4, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Evil thoughts. He's talking to people who are followers of Jesus Christ, just like you and me. Evil thoughts is what he calls this. You and I... When we think in this way, it's not an error, it's not a mistake, it's not a deviation, it's not I'm a little bit off the path, it's not I'm struggling with this thing in my life. Are you prepared to call it what it is? It's evil thoughts, it's evil. God and evil don't mix, remember that? God and evil don't mix. And so he he calls it out. It's direct. He doesn't equivocate at all. He pulls no punches. He's, he's saying that what they're doing is immoral. It's corrupt. It's wicked. There's no explaining it away. It isn't open for discussion. It's antithetical to God's way. It is sin. Say that with me. It is sin. And no matter who comes through that door, no matter who comes to this assembly of God's people, The command before us is this in the scriptures. We show no partiality. And he's demanding from his readers, by the way, in the form of a rhetorical question, that they admit it. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He's brought them to the point where they're reading this and going, yes, that's us. We've we've done that. I remember the Sunday when that happened. I remember the incident. I know the person. I'm the one who discriminated. I showed 
partiality. That's us. We're guilty. Sincere confession always precedes genuine change. Sincere confession always precedes genuine change. If you can't admit there's a problem, you won't see the need to alter your actions. This is what James is going after. This is what the Spirit of God is going after, even in this very moment. You say, well, I, I don't think, honestly, Todd, I, just don't, I really don't think I'm like that. I, I don't think I discriminate in any way against older people or younger people, against black people or anybody. I just don't think that that's me. But I think we're all in a way like this. Even if it's only in this. We like what are called homogeneous relationships. The most comfortable place for me to be is with other white, male, 40-something-year-old guys. True or false? That's, that's the most comfortable place for all of us. Whatever your, whatever your demographic is, it's just, it's just more uncomfortable with people of another race. It's more uncomfortable with people with, of, a, of a different gender. It's more uncomfortable with people who are in different age groups. It's more uncomfortable with people who are not healthy. If you're a healthy person, just whatever you are, your comfort zone is to be with people who are like you. And so anytime you're wrestling, struggling, giving into, I would prefer over this. It's very subtle, but it's there. And in many ways, we are soft racists. In that we prefer people who are just like us. And in our country, I want to say this because I think this is important for us to say. Many of you know that I grew up in Quebec. I grew up in, in, in the city of Montreal. I came out when I was a young teen. I have a, a perspective on what happens in this country that is unique because I was an Anglo, but part of the minority in a French-speaking province. I grew up with all the prejudices and hates, and you would think that it wouldn't be that way. And, and though I speak French and learned it in school and know the advantage of knowing that in our country, I grew up knowing the French were the French and the English were the English. And as Canadians, we have codified and accepted the tensions that exist in this country. And I'm not going to say just French and English. We have codified and accepted that it's okay to be Canadian and to loathe the French, loathe the English, loathe the First Nations for all their demands and everything they're doing, to loathe the immigrant. We, we, we've set it all up so that it's okay as Canadians. We've acknowledged the tension. Isn't that enough? No, it is not. Maybe it's enough if you're Canadian. It's certainly not enough if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Show no partiality. Not French versus English. Not English white versus First Nations. Not, not immigrants who have come to this country who are upsetting the status quo and taking away our jobs. We've we got to stop it. We are not first Canadians. We are first citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so we reflect the values of that constitution and that kingdom and not of this kingdom. And so, listen, we need to do better on all of this. Show no partiality. It fails to glorify God. And so when we get the God focus on track, we'll also see that discrimination, secondly, look at this, fails to extend unconditional love to others. Got our focus back on God. It fails to extend unconditional love to others. 
And if we want to have God's mind on this matter and extend unconditional love, then we, we need to get this. Okay, this is what we're going to see in these verses. Generally speaking, more poor people love Jesus than rich people do. Generally speaking, more poor people love Jesus than rich people do. Say, show me that. All right. Verse five. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Has not God chosen? Answer. Answer. Yes, he has. I would just say a couple of things here. And I say these things not cautiously, but carefully wanting you to really hear. Poverty seems to make a person's need of Christ more apparent. Does that make sense? This is a rational argument. Poverty seems to make a person's need of God more apparent. And it simultaneously strips away a lot of the things that can be a distraction to seeing God, things that we would cause, call idols that actually keep people from the worship of God. Things that the rich might have in their life and that would keep them because they're so self-sufficient and they have so much, it's just so hard to see God and to see their need of God. I love what William Baker, he's a commentator on this passage. Here's what he said. In the spiritual long run, a poverty is a distinct advantage despite the present misery it may inflict. Now, again, I would say that this applies to more than just poverty. Very often, if you just take a person's health away and, and they don't have the same abilities, if they're disabled in some way, if they have some other challenge in their life, perhaps they are part of a minority and it's more difficult for them in a culture. Whatever it is, whatever uh, the challenges that they face, whatever the thing is that could possibly cause discrimination, when those things are um, accentuated in a person's life and other advantages are taken away, it can be easier for a person to see their great need and then to seek the Lord. Then he, I think it's important to say this. I would just say this first. Three things that verse 5 does not say. Because we've already made this statement, generally speaking, more poor people love Jesus than rich people do. Three things this does not say. That poverty, first of all, is the reason that they're saved. God isn't just like, oh, there's a poor person, I'm saving them. It's still by faith, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, confession of sins. Poverty is not the reason that they're saved. Secondly, um, it, this does not say that all, pe all poor people will be saved. Still have to accept him by faith. And so poverty is not the reason they're saved. All poor people will not necessarily be saved. And three, uh, this does not say that rich people are excluded from being saved. And we know from the Gospels, it's just tougher. It's a harder thing for a person who's so self-sufficient in this life to come to a place where they recognize their need of Jesus Christ. All right, then James goes on to say, the rich and powerful, not the poor and marginalized, are the ones who have actually been more at the root of persecuting the church throughout history. You think about it. 
Who have been the oppressors of the church, not the poor. Who have been the ones in power and influence around the world in multiple countries throughout history who have actually been the ones who have tried to crush the church. It's always the rich and powerful, not the poor and marginalized. These are the ones who have set themselves against the faith and against the church. And that's the point of verses 6 and 7. Take a look there. But you have dishonored the poor man, are not the rich, are not the rich, the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name, something that's a reference to the name Christian, which James is a very early book and and, uh, only... Um, around the early stages of the church was the word Christian being used first as an insult and then, but to have Christ's name on us, to be called Christ followers, that's an honorable thing and a weighty thing. So he talks about the honorable name. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name of Christian by which you were called? And I think sometimes about our heroes these Hollywood people or these sports figures, these, these rich and powerful people that we seem to be so attracted to. And, and every once in a while, you get little sound bites about what they actually believe about God and faith and the word of God. And you realize they hate what we are. Yet we, we send them all kinds of accolades. We watch their movies. We support their industry. We put their posters up, we, we, we buy their swag, we, we wear their names on our bodies. Like we, we do all of this, and yet they blaspheme the very thing we stand for, the very purpose of our lives, and the name we put upon ourselves. It's tragic, really. When we do it, it really demonstrates that we fail to extend unconditional love to others. It's so irrational for the church and for believers to be cozying up to the wealthy and powerful when their aim is really just to exploit us for the purpose of personal gain, for power, for more money. But that's our problem. Because we're no less thinking about personal gain as they are. We think that if we can get close to Mr. Hanks, if we can get close to Brad and Angelina, if we can get close to Mr. Gates, that maybe we too would get some kind of personal advantage from it. That we might gain. The homeless guy, we're not getting anything off that guy. The young lady with tats and piercings, she's not offering us anything. The biker couple, they got nothing to offer me. Really, at the core of this, when we discriminate, we're we're really no better than the rich and wealthy and powerful people who are looking for personal gain. That's what we want. It exposes our own selfishness. And it's far from the unconditional love that God would have us demonstrate. Verses 8 and 9. We're getting to it now. He turns the corner here and he goes away from these rational arguments about why we really ought to not be honoring one over the other, not discriminating, not showing partiality. And then he gets to the theology of it in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, just stop there for a second. You can circle that phrase, the royal law. A likely reference. In fact, we're going to see that it, it truly is a reference to the great commandment. You can look in Matthew 22 and see Jesus talking about that there. 
where he was asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? He said to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. It's a great commandment. Here, James calls it the royal law, the supreme law, the highest law, the thing that, 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 um, that undergirds everything else. All the rest of the law is based on this. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, here it is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. Say it again for me. It is sin. It is sin. And are convicted by the law as transgressors. You really have two choices. It's love your neighbor as yourself or it's continue to show partiality, discrimination. But you can't be both. You can't claim to love your neighbor and be showing partiality in any way. Say, okay. I didn't really mean for you to say, okay, but okay. Who's my neighbor? Remember that question? Jesus was talking about the neighbor, love your neighbor. And then in Luke 10, he he told a story. What was the story he told to help them figure out who their neighbor was? It's a good Samaritan, right? The Samaritans. We hear the phrase good Samaritan and we think good things because we're 2000 years removed from ancient Israel, from Judea, in the time that Jesus walked on this earth. But when Jesus began to tell the story in answer to the question, who's my neighbor, and he used as an example the Samaritan, how did the Jews feel? The Jews who were listening to him tell this story. Not very good. Why? Because they discriminated against Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. Jews hated Samaritans. It's the classic racist Uh, tension that exists in a country. And so Jesus tells them this story of this good Samaritan, how amazing he was, how he shows up these Jews who claim to love God. And he uses that to teach them who their neighbor is. So let me ask you a question because it's important here. We're talking about discrimination and we want to know who our neighbor is because the counterpoint to showing partiality is love your neighbor. So who's our neighbor? Let me ask you a question. Most of you live in the city. How many people live in the city of Barrie? So raise your hand. How many people live in the county surrounding areas? Raise your hand. Okay. So um, no matter where you live, say in Ontario, here somewhere, um, we have such a kind of a diverse kind of culture that's being, um, that's being cultivated here that we know that almost anybody could move in next door to us now. Correct. So I want you to think about that because we're using the word neighbor. I want you to think about who could actually move in next door to you. For sale sign goes up, the neighbors move out. They were just like you. It was so easy. It was a great little relationship we had, but they moved out. And now this moving day comes and the truck comes. And you're, you're sitting there with some true or false. This happens, right? You sit there with some tension, wondering who exactly is going to be unpacking the truck. Who's moving into this house and and is it going to be hard or is it going to be easy for us? I mean, this is what Jesus and James are talking about here. He doesn't want us to discriminate against those neighbors no matter who they are. So let me ask you some questions. Um, Just you just nod your heads. okay? could it be a young couple that moves in? Could it be an older couple? Working, retired, unemployment. Unemployed, fully employed. Could be any of those things. Could it be, could it be a, a black family? 
Nod your heads whether you would be happy with that or not. Just nod your heads. Could be an Asian family. Could be a mixed race family. Could be a white family. Could be an Arab family. Could be Muslims. Hindus, Buddhists. Could be, could be any of those things, right? That's what's, that's what's true about our society now. It could be any of those. It could be First Nations. It, it could be a, a family of five or ten. It could, it could be two single people or three or maybe a bunch of students who go to Georgian and have parties. It could be a disabled person and all kinds of alterations need to be done to the front of the house and you wonder how that's going to affect your property values. What is it going to be like to have them? They might have a dog that barks all night. It could be somebody healthy and fit and they show you up. It could be that guy who keeps his lawn so perfect everyone else in the neighborhood hates him. It could be that guy. Dad. <laughs> could be, it could be people who don't have the same sexual orientation as you, who are struggling with that in some way. It, it could be someone who's been divorced once, twice, three times, a couple living together. It could be someone who you can just see by how they look that they've lived a really difficult life. It, it could be anyone. Any one of them could be your neighbor. And the command comes to us, show no partiality, the counterpoint. Love your neighbor as yourself, whoever they are. Show no partiality. There's no room for discrimination among the followers of Jesus Christ. And so the list is long of people who are different than you are, who according to God's word are your neighbor, who according to God's word we must not discriminate against, who according to God's word we are commanded to love unconditionally. That's kind of driving it home in a very individual sense for every one of us right where we live. And then if I could kind of zoom out a little bit and talk to us as a church, that my heart for us is that as we grow and the numbers increase and the machinery of ministry just becomes so routine and it's all cogs and wheels and we just work things out so that it's all comfortable all the time, that it can be so easy for a church just to settle into what it is. We have a nice church here. It's so comfortable. Why would we ever want to upset that? We seem to be on mission. We're sending money overseas. We're partnering with people. We give all the guise of really doing things for God and glorifying Him. But then we just kind of settle into that. And we're no longer willing to cross the street and hand an invitation to someone or, or to go to our neighbors or to invite someone who's different. And we begin to think of people coming to Christ as being just a little bit too messy for us. All their problems and everything and, and how hard it's going to be. And, and it's all really just showing partiality because we're just saying once again that we just prefer life the way it is with the people that we're comfortable with and, and we just don't want to go to all the effort. 
I would have the heart for our church that we would never become like that. Barry still, Barry and Simcoe County for sure, are still a fairly white Anglo community. 92%, 93% of Barry is still white Anglo. And so I would hope that our church, as I look across, I see some color, I see some mix here, and I would hope that it's at least 8%. You know what I'm saying? That at least, at the very least, we would reflect the diversity of our community in an ethnic sense. I don't know how we do on the socioeconomic. I would wager a guess. I know there's some people who struggle financially here. I know there's some people here who are people of better means. I don't know how we reflect all of that. I don't know really how we're doing or if we're doing anything at all to genuinely reach out to those who are poor. We have some efforts that we do down in the city. How are we doing individually with that? Some of you I know are very involved in helping those who would be counted as the destitute poor of our city. And I commend you for that. I would want more of that. More individuals saying, I'm going to help with Out of the Cold. I'm going to volunteer and work with the Berry Food Bank. I'm I'm going to work with the women's shelter. I'm going to do whatever I can to try and alleviate suffering and bring Jesus Christ to people who need it. We don't need to do that officially as a church. We just need lots of people in the church to say, I'm taking that on as my responsibility. I want to do that. And so we want to increasingly be showing in every facet of demographics that this church is not only reflecting the city, but could I say it this way, that we're actually leading in our community in those respects. That we would be more diverse in every way than even our city and county would reflect. And it's the clear contention of the Bible that when we seek to have a diverse church, I love this last part, we're... We're preparing ourselves for eternity. When we seek to have a diverse church, we're preparing ourselves for eternity. Listen to what John Bryson said about this. If you do not like the diverse church, if that's uncomfortable for you, then you're going to hate heaven. So let's get at it. Let's let's be building that here and now. Amen? Let's work toward that here at Harvest as we continue to grow. Um, as the followers of Christ and as the church of Jesus Christ. Finally, let's look at this. No room for discrimination among Christ followers because, thirdly, it it fails to recognize that God will hold us to account. We've already got a little taste of what eternity is like. We've talked about that a little bit, and we understand that in eternity there is a judgment that will be faced. Now, we'll face it if, capital F, we will face it if, We fail on this point. If we do not fail, if we're successful in not showing partiality, then then we don't have to worry about the judgment. There won't be one for us because we will demonstrate ourselves to be true followers of Jesus Christ. If you claim to be a Christ follower and expect to go to heaven, then God expects that you're going to spend your life here and now being no respecters of persons. Living your life as Jesus Christ lived his life. Jesus was no respecter of persons, amen? No respecter of persons. You read the Gospels and you just see how he broke down, tore down, destroyed barriers that society had set up. Jesus welcomed anybody who was a genuine seeker 
He embraced women and the young and Gentiles and the infirmed, sinful, doubters, rich and poor, powerful and lowly, religious and irreligious. Jesus spoke and related to all of them. No one who genuinely sought him was rejected ever on the basis of race or gender or age or, or, or previous or current moral or immoral choices. And that is the standard for you and I. If you take the name of Jesus Christ on you, that's the standard by which, in fact, we will be judged. So this, does it feel like this message has been heavy? Does it feel like, I feel like it's been heavy. Verse 10's lights out. Heavy. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. You got that underlined in your Bible? Because whatever sin you've struggled with this week, whatever it is, however minor you think it might be, because you committed that sin, you're guilty of the whole thing. Got it? See how this works? It's heavy, right? Agree that it's heavy. It's heavy. We're guilty of the whole thing. We, We like to rank sin, by the way. If there is any ranking of sin, I just prefer to leave that to God. Amen? If he wants to rank sin, if he wants to say that one sin is worse than another, he's going to be the one who judges all of this anyways. I just don't want to be the one who has to say, I think that sin is worse than this sin. And you, and you get every indication here that God's not really thinking of it in that way, that if you're guilty of one sin and he doesn't really specify, just fails in one point, just one point, whatever it is. Take your pick. Guilty of the whole thing. We think that some sins are just far worse than others. And and we would even have a sense that discrimination, what we're talking about here, that, that can't possibly rank very high. It can't be one of the big ones. Can it really be one of the big ones? Well, it doesn't matter. If you fail in one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. So then James gives us an example, which Jesus, by the way, gave as an example in the Gospels as well. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Okay, got it. God said both those things. If you do not commit adultery, you're faithful to your marriage. But you do murder. You have become a transgressor of the law. The whole law, the whole thing. In other words, if you murder, you're also guilty of adultery. We see those two things different in our society, by the way. Adultery might result in divorce, a a, a severing of a relationship. Murder results in uh, imprisonment. We don't put people in prison for adultery, by the way. But we do put people in prison for murder. We put them on trial for that. And so we've created a hierarchy of these things in order to keep a just society. Uh, But God says, if you commit adultery or you commit murder or you lie or you steal, no matter how small it is, if you um, uh, submitted your taxes this year, but you didn't claim all your income, um, uh, guilty of murder, adultery, run the list. Lying, run the list. Some of you right now are looking up the numbers of your accountants to change your taxes, and I would commend you for that. Guilty of the whole thing. See, see, the reality here as we think about it is that it, no matter how minor our sin is, no matter how 
small we think it is, it still is enough to separate us from God. See, that's the point that's being made here. I understand that there's different consequences. I understand that the consequences of murder are far different than you cheating on your taxes. I get that. God gets that too, by the way. But the cheating on your taxes or whatever other small sin or whatever little bit of discrimination and prejudice exists inside of you, no less requires the death of Jesus Christ, no less requires his shed blood to cleanse you of that sin and bridge the gap that exists between you and God. We are no less needy. We are no less responsible for sending Jesus Christ to his death. And so we have to accept our plight. God is holding us to an account. None of this is meant to minimize certain sins or elevate others, but merely indicates that all sin is to be accounted for. No sin is to ever be discounted. Here's James's good idea, verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. It's a great plan. Be like Jesus. Just write that beside the verse. Be like Jesus. Speak and act. Speak and act in a way consistent with what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, who knows that there could be judgment. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over justice. Live your life in such a way that you can withstand the test of judgment, the law of liberty, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has as its basis mercy. In other words, we throw ourselves with abandon, admitting our need, confessing our sins. We throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus Christ. That's how we get saved. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The mercy of God, the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ satisfies the righteous demands of God, the justice that he requires. God the Father's ultimate act of mercy, Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and that demonstration of mercy satisfied the justice of God. His love overwhelms our need the judgment that was before us, mercy triumphs over judgment. And so don't miss this. Don't miss this. Mercy shown by the Christ follower in not discriminating against another. This is what James is driving towards. Mercy shown by the Christ follower in not discriminating against another is the evidence of mercy received from Christ. You will show mercy because you received mercy. And if you do not show mercy, it simply means this. You have not received mercy. And therefore, you are still facing judgment. It's a lot. It's been heavy. I get it. Um, here's one thing I want to say. I love in the book of Thessalonians where the Apostle Paul, he challenges them really hard about some things and then he just says to them in just such an encouraging way, um, do this as I know you're already doing, just do it more and more. And he just seeks to encourage them to say, I think you're making progress in this and I know I've said a hard thing to you, but I want you to be encouraged. And I would just say to you, this to you, church, and I've, 
I've known you. I've been part of this church from the very beginning. And I, I would just say this. That one of the things I believe our church has been growing in these past few years is grace. And there is in this church a very sweet spirit of grace and mercy that's growing. I think it's accepting of people. I think it's inclusive. It's not that we have this thing nailed or we've arrived in any sense of that. Uh, We must continue to grow in this for sure. But I believe that we're on our way to being the kinds of Christ followers who are non-discriminatory. Who really, truly are not showing partiality in any way. We have been through some difficult days. We have grown in our understanding of the scriptures and who the Lord Jesus Christ is. We have experienced grace poured out to us. And I believe that we are growing in such significant ways in our ability to dispense grace, love, mercy to others. And so, church, I would just say to you, let's just keep doing that more and more. Amen? All right, let's pray together. God, our Father, I'm so grateful that um, that you have spoken so clearly to us in your word. And God, I would pray for us as a church that we would continue to grow in these things and that no matter who would come through that back door, whether wealthy and influential and powerful or dirt poor, whether able-bodied or disabled, black or white, or any race whatsoever, young or old, God. We would be welcoming and loving as Jesus Christ was. That we would be as inclusive as we can possibly be. God, that we would, in every respect, show no partiality. And so reflect the love that you have shown to us, the mercy that you've extended to us. Father, help us to love our neighbor in the workplace, at home, and in the context of this church community. God, be glorified with us and in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We pray that today's message was encouraging and challenging. For more info about Harvest Bible Chapel, check us out online at harvestberry.ca. Thanks again, and remember, you are loved.